It goes A's for ambition, be what I wanna be. See past the situation that's in front of me. Doubt is an enemy, Zep, we say fuck them. The irony is they inspire me to love them. G is past go when ignite the cash flow when eights is put to Hey there and welcome to Grit True Stories That Matter. My name is Sean, and Grit is a weekly podcast about stories the contemporary personal narrative kind of story and the people that craft and tell them. Why, you ask? Well, we want to feature these tellers and their stories and also to help you, our listeners, craft and tell better, more engaging, more relatable, and more memorable stories. True stories. Personal stories. Grit stories. We are in the middle of season number three dedicated to grit talks and the best of, and today we have got two stories from 7 by 7 which was a virtual storytelling event that started in the spring of 2020 and was shelved, maybe temporarily, last year. Our first story is by Jack Shear, who lives up in Maryland. It's about nine minutes. And Dave Nelson's got about a 10-minute story. Dave lives up in Wisconsin. Thank you both for letting me use your stories on this podcast. Check the show notes for upcoming events, including the 99-second story slam. And you will notice something a little different in today's podcast. I am using the original introduction I gave for both Jack and Dave during this event. So that's a little different. And we're playing with our music. The stories are the stories. I hope you enjoy them both. Jack and Dave, let's dive in. So our first storyteller has been telling stories since 2015. Prior to that, he spent nearly three decades telling other people's stories as an actor and director in community theater. Uh, He was performing with groups throughout the Washington, D.C. area. He holds a bachelor's degree in communication studies from Northern Illinois. uh, He participated on the speech and debate team, but tonight is not a debate. It is a story. He's a native Chicagoan. Go Cubs. He now resides in Silver Silver Springs, Maryland. Please welcome our first storyteller, uh, Jack cheer so when i started therapy eight or nine years ago the last thing i expected to be talking about was the classic my parents i had pretty good childhood so i didn't think there was a lot that would come up along those lines but as my therapist and i began to look at the events of my life with a critical eye it became clear there were some issues there And about half of my sessions ended up being about my parents. And whenever I came out of a session like that, I would come out frustrated and angry. Uh, Some of it was about the past. There were things about my childhood that I thought were great, but looking at them with perspective, there were issues. The other half of it was I'd been having more strained relations with my parents as the years had gone on. A big reason for this was they were in bad health, and it was only getting worse. And I was trying to convince them to do something to help themselves, uh, move into assisted living or have a nurse come in and visit. Uh, I even tried to convince them to move closer to me and my brother uh, so that we could be there to help them. Uh, They refused and kind of pretended there were no problems. So as I was digging up all this stuff in therapy and, and getting to know myself better, I The therapy itself was great for me. It was these feelings that were a problem. And I think all of my meddling made my parents sour on me as well. By the end of it, well, not the end, but certainly when things were worst, we were barely talking. The only time we would talk was birthdays, holidays, and emergencies. 
one day, two years ago, our relationship changed dramatically in one day. And because of that, despite all the good that it was doing, I decided to quit therapy. It was a Saturday, early fall, and I was getting ready to enjoy some college football. I just cracked open a beer, settling into the couch, put my feet up on the ottoman, and my phone rings. It's my parents. It's not a holiday, and it ain't my birthday. Hello? Jack, it's mom. Hi, mom. What can I do for you? Your dad's sick, and he needs to go to the hospital. Now, they've been going to the hospital quite a bit over the last few years because of their health. Uh, and usually they wouldn't tell me about it until after the fact, another way of trying to keep control and keep me in the dark. Uh, one time I didn't find out about it until months later and then only because they put it in the Christmas letter. So the fact that mom was calling now meant something was really bad. All right, mom, tell me what's happening. What's happening right now? Well, your father fell and I tried to help him up but I couldn't and I ran and got a neighbor. He couldn't help either, so I called an ambulance and they're gonna take him to the hospital now. Well, how is he? Is, is, is he conscious? How bad is it? Oh, honey, I, this is all so hard. Listen, I'm, get, I'm just gonna hand you to the police officer. Oh, shit. If there's a police officer there, that means something's horribly wrong. He comes on and he suggests that I get in the car and get down there immediately because my mother is going to need me. He hands the phone back. All right, mom, listen, it's gonna take me an hour to get to you. I'm gonna call Stacy and see if she can drive you to the hospital. I don't want you driving right now. Okay? Yeah, that's fine, I'll, I'll see you at the hospital. Uh, Stacy is not only my best friend, but she is a family friend. She loves my parents. Uh, I call and she's more than willing to get mom and take her to the hospital. I hop in the car and I immediately blare the music because I can't think about what might be happening down there. I can't afford for my imagination to run away with me. So I just concentrate on the music and focus on my only job right now, which is getting to the hospital. And as I pull off the road, off the, the beltway, I realize I don't know which hospital I'm going to. My father has been to a couple of different ones over the years. At the next red light, I text Stacy, and a minute later, she's calling. Stace, where am I headed? Jack, I'm so sorry. I have to do this. Your father died. Okay. Um, are you in Clinton or La Plata? Clinton. Okay, uh, I'll be there in 10 minutes. I pull into the parking lot. Stacy meets me, gives me a hug, takes me into the waiting room of the emergency department where mom is sitting. I lean down and I hug her. We don't really say anything. It's clear we're all in shock. And after about 30 minutes, I go to the nurse's station and I say, can we see him? About 15 minutes later, someone comes back and says, we needed to clean him up. You can come this way. And as we're walking to the room, Stacy and mom and I discuss, and we decide we're each going to go in alone, one at a time. Mom goes in first, spends three or four minutes. She comes back out. It's my turn. I walk into the room, 
and I see my father's body. He is slightly propped up on a hospital bed. He's bare-chested, a sheet covering the rest of him. He's still intubated. I'm angry about this. Why didn't they take the tube out? I wonder. I get a little closer and I look at his face. I don't know what I'm expecting to see. Agony, shock, pain. But instead, he looks serene, at peace. I want to feel him, touch him one last time in this world. And this is my only chance. Years ago, dad had decided to donate his body to medical science. There will be no wake, no funeral. This is it. I reach out and I, I hold him by the shoulder. He's still warm. And I look down at his face and I try to quickly come to terms with the fact that he's gone. And after a minute, I step back. Okay. Okay. I love you. Goodbye. Two days later, I went into my therapist's office for the last time. Even though therapy had been great for me and helped me in a lot of areas, I knew I had to stop. That police officer had been right. My mom needed me now. And I know there was no way I could help her while also carrying those feelings of frustration and anger and who knows what else might come up after dad was gone. So I put my feelings on the shelf and got about helping mom. Late last year, I finally got her into assisted living. She is comfortable and safe. A couple of months ago, I sold their house. I still have a couple of chores to do for mom, some loose ends to tie up for dad. But once I've checked those final items off my list, I think I'm going to be calling my therapist to see if I can get my old slot. So A is to attempt to be the change you want to see. And D is to be different. But tell us what you mean. Like, are you one of them good guys or you one of us fiends? Either way, you got to eat. Uh-huh. Elevate your mind, right? Because F is for the fine life. And that's how you define life. But I say, G is get back to your home. And H is help the people that didn't help to along. Oh, yeah, fuck it. We go back to F because that's for freedom. G is keep your good thoughts because, buddy, you going to need them. And H is if your hood stars, buddy, you going to feed them. It's for them jump offs we wanted as kids Looking through the glass, seeing a life we want to live in And there's more money, more problems And N-O, there's no peas And that's pessimistic profits Now, our next storyteller I know him as Dave Nelson Some of the world knows him as Dave Emanuel But either way, his name is Dave And here's what I want you to know about Dave Dave tells jokes and stories Out of Madison, Wisconsin Which is a city or a town I've never been to And I want to go uh, beyond stand-up comedy, he has won Moth Story Slams, not easy to do, in Chicago, Madison, Milwaukee, and the Twin Cities. He has also participated in the National Storytelling Festivals. Festival, it's just one. And despite having a PhD in political science, man, Dave, I'm totally asking you about that after your story. He's never told a political joke on stage, and I think we're all grateful for that. <laughs> Most of his stuff is about puberty, awkward sex, midlife crises, and of course, what he is planning to share with us 
right now. Please give it up for uh, Dave Nelson. I grew up back in the 80s with a slew of stuff going on in my brain. I had depression. I had anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder. I had dyslexia. I had ADHD before they diagnosed it. But the thing I was scared of most, what bothered me the most was not any of these disorders, not any of these problems that I ran away around town with. It was that somebody would know I was different, right? I grew up in Fresno, California, a a, a desert kind of town that's been irrigated, tough kids running around in the 70s and then into the 80s. And back then, you know, we didn't have regular folks who had mental health needs. We had regular people, and we had crazy people. We had people on the street who talked to themselves. We had institutions. We had hospitals. You know, I could be weird, but, but my gosh, I didn't want people to know everything that was going on in my head. So I hid everything, right? Or I tried to. I said that I had obsessive compulsive disorder. One of the things that happened to me was if I went upstairs, for every three stairs I went up, I had to take a step back down. Had to. Or bad things, bad, bad things could happen. We're talking, this is the 80s, right? So we're talking about nuclear confrontation all, all on my shoulders, all resting on my shoulders. And I didn't want anybody to know that I was crazy, but also what was going on, the stress. I hid my anxieties really well. I remember I had a social life. I did sleepovers and I trained my dog because I was scared of going out teepeeing on the streets with all the other, we'd go out and we'd throw toilet paper and eggs on people's cars and houses because that's what you did. But I was scared of the night, like, like trembling scared. So I trained my dog and if I gave her the signal, snap my fingers like that, she would start barking like crazy. So when we got to the door and we were ready to go out, I'd kind of do this on the side. The dog would freak out, go a little bit nuts for me. We'd all run back into our sleeping bags and I would avoid, I would avoid the TPing. I had strategies everywhere and I made it. People knew I was a weird kid, but I wasn't one of them. I wasn't an other. And that's what I didn't want to be. I didn't want to be an other. Now, fast forward to the 90s, even with all that, I graduate college, I, I go off to Washington, D.C., and I'm working on my passion. I end up a mental health advocate, uh, working there on mental health budgets and mental health parity. I'm working for the things that I think are important. And, you know, by now, Prozac has come out, right? So mental health is a little bit different. We're all talking about our mental health needs. We're all going to therapy. We're all taking our pills and feeling we felt a little bit cool because we could talk about our mental health needs. But there was still an other. There was still a them. There were people like me. We had jobs. We had families. And then there were the folks who were homeless, the folks in institutions, the folks who may not talk as smoothly, uh, may have dry mouth, may have gained weight from their medications, may have slurred their words, may not have dressed as well as everybody else, may have looked a little bit different. And I was a mental health advocate. I had a job and a family and a nice house and I worked on mental health budgets and I was cool. And I was working for those people and those issues. But you know, I was an arrogant jerk because I thought I was different. I thought there was something different between me and the people who really had mental illness. 
And I remember I was at a conference of the National Alliance for the Mentally Ill in, in Washington, D.C. at the Hilton. And I don't know if anybody here has gone to a NAMI meeting, but there were, it's, it's kind of like high school at a conference. There were distinct groups of people. There were these older women, the NAMI mommies, and they're dressed very well. And they, they, they're, they're usually a parent of somebody with a mental illness, and they're there. There are the providers of mental health services, not dressed quite as well as the NAMI mommies. There are um, advocates and folks like me. If you looked on the side, you would see the drug reps in their nicer suits and their, their better smiles. And then you'd have the people in, 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 in NAMI really focus on people what they called serious and persistent mental illness, right? And they had a certain number of diagnoses that were for them. And they were there and they were learning and they were part of it. And I was an advocate and a nice guy. And I, I talked about my mental health needs and I moved pretty smoothly pretty smoothly through this group. I could go from click to click to click at the NAMI conference and feel good about myself. And I could feel like I was doing a good job and I wasn't a them, right? Yeah, I'd stayed up late, panicked, found myself in the fetal position in my closet. I had um, contemplated suicide several times and I drank ungodly amounts of alcohol to survive. But but I, I wasn't crazy. I wasn't of them. I, I, I was doing just fine. Now, I had a moment, a moment where I had to address these issues on the spot. And it begins innocent enough, about two in the morning. I'm in my hotel room and I get up to go to the bathroom. This is the Hilton. It's, it's, it's two in the morning. I go into the bathroom. I shut the door behind me and I open my eyes. And I'm not in the bathroom. I'm in the hallway. I've just locked myself out. And I'm in my boxer shorts, which are all I've slept in. My wallet, my keys, everything, my phone, not the fancy one, but the flip phone is, is back there in the room. And I'm standing in my underwear. Thank God I was in my underwear at a hotel room at a NAMI conference. Now, this hotel room was built like um, in a rectangle where all the rooms faced around, but that you could go in a complete squared loop. And I guess they had janitorial things and um, the elevators in the middle. And I, 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 I don't know what to do. So I go around, I'm looking around, I, I can't figure out how to get back in my room. And I'm just about, I'm just about to go and just do it. Get in the elevator, go down to the lobby and tell people, yep, messed up. The elevator rings and a couple of times it, people come up because you know it's DC, you wanna have fun. I run around the outskirts of the, of, of the hotel, like if they're coming around one corner, I'm going around the next corner until they get to their room and I'm just in my underwear hiding from them. And as I do that, I hear a voice and this person says, are you okay? I'm standing in my underwear and I look over and there's three people and they're looking at me and I recognize them from the conference. They're what we call mental health consumers. Some folks say I have mental health needs, but at least in the 90s, what we said was consumers. And they say, is everything okay with you? Do you need any help, buddy? And I look at them, I say, I locked myself out. And they're real careful with me, right? Like, like they've seen people in the bad place before. And far as they know, this guy running around a hotel room in his underwear at a conference for uh, 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 that supports people with mental illnesses, I'm having a bad time. 
But they come over to me and one goes to their room and gets me like a blanket to put over myself. And the other one goes downstairs to get somebody to come up to my room and let me in. And they talk to me in a real calm, cool voice, making sure I'm okay. Did I bring my meds with me? Do you have anybody I need me to call? Like they know this and they know the routine and they've been taking care of each other. Maybe each one of them had had a similar problem and take care of it. Maybe they found each other on the streets. Maybe they've recognized people in institutions and they've been there for each other and they know exactly how to act. And at that moment, that epiphany of what an asshole I am, even though I was doing the right things behaviorally in my head, thinking of myself as different, at that moment, they weren't a them. They were an us and they wanted to help me. I've not been perfect since then. There have been moments of pride and vanity, moments when I still went on to think about suicide or find myself in a fetal position in my closet and then put on my suit and tie the next day and acted like I had my shit together. But deep down, deep down, I know that's not the case. Deep down, I know that I'm part of a community in that funny moment in a hotel room, that community was there for me. And I've got to get over my own bullshit and be there for them and be a part of an us, not a them. As always, thanks so much for listening and all of your support. And special thanks to Jack and Dave, thank you, gentlemen, for your stories. Check the show notes for upcoming events, including the 99-second story slam. We're in season number six. It should be a lot of fun whether you want to tell a story or watch and vote or both. And, of course, please keep in mind, you, our listeners, are welcome to join us, The Swap Shop, which is part of GRID, every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern if you would like to get feedback on your personal narrative stories. And a quick favor, let folks know about this podcast. If you like it, share it on social media. And if you listen on Apple, rating and reviewing helps people find it. And we want more people to find it. So thank you for that. And that is all for episode number 81. Boom.